Hallelujah, Lord. We thank you, Heavenly Father, that you have ordained from eternity past that this moment occur with us, the small band representing a small portion of your church today. Lord, we thank you that you have graciously given us your word to open, that you have given to us the helper, the Holy Spirit, to apply it to our hearts. You have granted to us the precious blood of Christ, the means of our salvation, that we have in Christ, in union with Him, hope, assurance of eternal life. I pray now as we fellowship together in Christ, that you would bind us together in the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, first to who you are, and secondly, Lord, to each other in unity as we realize the weight of your work and the basis, foundation of our joy, of our hope, of our fellowship, and of the meaning and purpose of our life and calling beyond these doors. May you be lifted up and glorified in this message. Lord, even as your name is exalted in these songs that we sung, may you be praised. May you be written deep and etched upon the hearts of everyone through communion this morning and all that you might be glorified and your people better equipped to carry out your will. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. I'm so thankful to the Lord for another opportunity to open up His Word together this morning. Turn with me, if you would, again, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Our primary text today will be chapter 10, verses 1 through 22. Of a brief in-between message before we launch another communion series, tentatively titled The Harmony of the Covenants out of Hebrews, that will launch next month, Lord willing. But in the meantime, as this morning, we've decided to do something slightly different with communion, and in so doing, hopefully better represent the vision of communion, I thought it would be a good idea to take this moment this morning in a specific and more standalone message to deliver some instructions from Paul to us today, even as he delivered them to the church in Corinth years ago. Thousands, in fact, yet their relevance rings true to my ears, and I hope all of us, as we read these scriptures this morning. Paul's letter comes to a church that was at least complacent, at least complacent. As we've mentioned many times in our Corinthian series out of 2 Corinthians, complacency could be perhaps described as the least of this church's problems. There was heresy that they were willing to listen to. There were false and wayward affections. There was a restriction and closing of their heart to the truth. There was wanton lust. There was great sins. There was horrible perversions. There was distortions of the direction that they ought to head. And yet Paul... Graciously, by the power of the Spirit, delivered words that could cut through the sin and the deception and bring them back to the centrality and the hope of their communion and their faith, their unity. But it would only be by Christ and through Christ and in Christ and on Christ that this would be possible. And so the message of the gospel comes so clear, cuts through the noise of confusion and the morass of sinful hearts to bring this church once again to Calvary, and to bring them to Calvary in a very real way, not as it were in a time machine to where they could stand on that mount, the very moment 
that Christ himself died, but to bring them to Calvary through communion, through the sacrament of communion, so that when it was practiced rightly among them again, they might realize the centrality of the work of Jesus Christ. And that might be the place to start to heal their mind, to heal their actions, to heal this church, and to provide once again a basis for unity between them. The title of this morning's message is Table Manners. And I apologize for how trivial that sounds on first pass. But we have in our context culturally a certain etiquette that we expect of ourselves even in this cultural decline when we sit at, say, a guest table. If we were to go into the house of someone who invites us over to eat, and if they've taken the time to prepare the meal, we recognize the work of their hands, sometimes even in the prayer we give, and we respect that time that the lady of the house, perhaps a housewife, took to take those extra hours in her hospitality to make that meal, to take time out of the family schedule and to set it before you as the guest, and so you're required under those conditions. You feel that social obligation to show some manners, some cordial politeness, and thus table manners, and a certain rule of etiquette is expected when we sit at a guest table. So as the title of this morning's message is Table Manners, I would ask you this question. By matter of degree, how much more table manners ought we share, ought we to share or offer or to exhibit when we sit before the table of our Lord? The psalmist says in Psalm 23 that the Lord prepares a table before him in the presence of his enemies. The scriptural ideas of feasting and meal and covenant meal and the breaking of bread together are a theme throughout the history of redemptive revelation. And there is meant to be connected to that idea of feasting a holy and reverential attitude. That when you sit down at the table of the Lord, it is the highest and holiest of attitude that you ought to have before you presume to share in the presence of the Almighty God who has taken the time, the effort, and made the sacrifice to prepare a place for you to come and meet with Him at the cost of His Son. When we consider the weight of communion in this way, it brings us with a fearful reverence to an awareness of an attitude we might need to repent of as a very often cavalier church today. Cavalier meaning could care less, or it's of little weighty matter, not very profound, trivial, routine, rote, part of the daily thing, schedule, obligation, and I don't care all that much about it. The cavalier attitude of the Corinthian church evident in their approach to to communion or the Lord's table prompted a sobering exhortation from the Apostle Paul. He poses the question in verse 22. Read with me chapter 10, 22. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Paul is saying that in the attitude that the Corinthian church had, to the holy 
sacrificial, reverential, and gracious, sovereign, and miraculous opportunity for fellowship that a holy God has provided sinful man, that the attitude that they entertained when they approached the reality of what communion represented ran the risk of provoking the Lord to jealousy and presuming to be stronger than Him. I cannot imagine a more fearful place to be. The very thought that an indictment such as this might be levied against us in this age, a very trivial thought and cavalier attitude to all things holy ought to cause us to shudder to our very core. We need to ask ourselves a question as the church today, as it was a duty for the Corinthian church in light of the admonition of the apostle to ask then, are we provoking the Lord to jealousy in our attitude towards His holiness? Are we presuming to be stronger, better, smarter, more progressive, more able to fend for ourselves, provide for our future, or be the captain of our own salvation than He can be? If so, the only thing to do is to repent or to suffer swift and immediate judgment. How do we measure up in our reverence for the event of communion with the historical parallels that are offered in this chapter? Think about it. Paul references the Red Sea deliverance, the protective and guiding cloud of glory, the miraculous provision in the wilderness wanderings of manna appearing from heaven, heavenly food prepared by the Lord himself appearing on the ground day after day for decades as his people are guided by his sovereign hand through his ordained journey to the promised land. And also we find the comparison, the sweeping and immediate judgments for covenantal disobedience, disregarding the truths and the commitments that God's people made with him at this time. All these are comparisons that Paul draws with the sobriety of what communion represents. And they remind us of the holy thing that we partake in today and of the attitude we must have. A heading for a few points that hopefully responsibly draw out the principles of chapter 10, verses 1 through 22, as Paul delivers it to the church. The heading is as follows. A complacent church must be reminded that communion is, number one, a categorical event. Number two, I'll explain these in course, an eschatological landmark. Number three, a way of escape. Number four, a right of identification. Number five, a confession of transcending unity. And number six, a feast of demarcation. Chapter 10, verse 1, Paul says the following to this complacent church. I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food. And all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. And the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them God was not pleased. For they were overthrown in the wilderness. Paul is speaking to categorical events in the history of of the people of God as represented by the Hebraic nation and culture of the Old Testament. 
which we find to be a redemptive benchmark, a picture, and a prophecy, a prefiguring of what the church, the covenant people are today. A categorical event is an event that is so important as to delineate categories. That is to say that those who are under the cloud were safe and protected and guided. And that category had salvation. And those out from under the cloud, cloud were crushed, destroyed, drowned, and slaughtered by the angel of death. A categorical event of the crossing of the Red Sea was such that those who followed Moses and followed the way made straight through the sea were brought safely and dry to the other side to rejoice in the power of God to deliver through the dire circumstances of imminent threat of armies and of obstacles standing in the way of His promises. Meanwhile, as the sea collapsed, On their enemies, those who did not find safe passage from the sea were categorically judged and destroyed. And so we find it in each one of these examples. All who were baptized into Moses and the cloud and the sea, they all ate the same spiritual food. All who drank from the same spiritual drink, they drank from the spiritual rock which followed them. That rock was Christ and ultimately the category of in Christ and outside of Christ is the final and definitive categorical separation of all people covenantally for all time. The categorical event of the cross separates the wheat from the chaff, the sheep from the goats, the righteous from the unrighteous, the judged from those who receive mercy forever and for all time. Just as it was clear That only those who were guided on dry land through the Red Sea would make it safely to the other side. So it is clear that only those who are guided by Jesus Christ through the morass of their own sin, by the way that His blood alone makes it, makes, can make it clearly through this life and our sin to safety in eternal life. We live in a day where faith is seen as a private matter. And things like communion and baptism are taken so lightly. This week I was on the phone with someone, previous homeowner that we built for. She mentioned a few insightful things just by way of small talk that turned profound in a moment. She said, oh, I'm so happy I have my first grandkid. But I'm sad in a way as well. Because my kids have decided not to raise their children in church and not to baptize my grandchild, and she said that was sad for her. She comes from a Presbyterian tradition. She had made a, um, a keepsake, you know, something already worked for the, you know, she had worked on for the child's first baptism. She said something else, though, that was equally insightful. She said, you know, it's not a matter of God accepting them. I believe truly God accepts everybody. But I am discouraged that my children are not going to raise my grandchildren in a Christian tradition. Let me ask you this question. What meaning has baptism if it is no longer a categorical experience? What was the meaning of the baptism of chapter 10, verse 2? Moses in the cloud. That meant that all who were identified with the saving power of God 
as represented through this covenant leader, Moses, his prophet, were the ones who are saved. And those who are not baptized, God's only means of salvation, were judged, condemned, left hopeless and without God, and justly received hell as the payment and penalty for their sins. What is baptism if it is not associated with a categorical experience that separates one group of people from another? The Bible says that union in Christ is a categorical separation of identity with the judgment that Jesus Christ bore for our sins. Thus, only those who are baptized in Christ, who are made one with His death, can be made one with His resurrection. Thus, the meaning of communion, the meaning of baptism, the meaning of Christianity loses its biblical weight, loses its comprehensibility if we lose the fact that there is a covenant and only those who measure up according to God's perfect standards of righteousness will be saved. And this is certainly impossible without the imputed blood and righteousness of Jesus Christ. Think about it. What of the firstborn whose door was left, whose doorpost was left bloodless in Exodus 12, verses 29 through 30? We read about the fallout on that one fateful night when God commissioned the angel of death, and every doorpost that did not bear the blood of the Paschal Lamb, there was a slaughter in that home that night. And the firstborn behind every bloodless doorpost was dead that morning. Think about it. What of those who found no safe passage through the sea? We mentioned this already, but Exodus 14, 26-30 picks up on the story. The sea collapsed and suffocated in a boiling mass, a tempestuous judgment. Every one of the enemies of God who pursued those who were baptized into Moses. And the next day, the corpses of the strongest enemy that the world knew at that time, with the most advanced technology that science had developed to that time, littered, littered the seaside. And as waves washed dead body after dead body against the shore of God's deliverance, it was clear in that moment that this was a categorical event. God forbid that they should ever leave the safety of that baptism and association with the cloud of glory and with the law of Moses ever again, but some did. What of those who rejected the baptism of Moses? Numbers 21, 1-6 through 6, illustrates for us the weighty consequences when a plague arrives and serpents are dispatched. And in the end... 24,000 God's people are dead in judgment. And those who are in the category who look upon the serpent, the bronze serpent raised on a pole in their midst, are saved. But not before 24,000 who rejected the word of the Lord are dispatched in one fell swoop of God's sovereign judgmental hand. What of those who refuse drink from the spiritual rock, as it were? Numbers 25, 1-9 tells us of another great judgment. There were those who were carousing, breaking God's law, sexually illicit behavior, 
running rampant in their midst. And God brought swift and certain judgment again. And in this case, the sword of God's justice delivered a fatal blow to those who had rejected His way of salvation. And finally, and summarily, Revelation 20, verses 13 through 15, we read at the close of the canon and the consummation of the ages, what of those names, what of those names conspicuously absent from the book of life? And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. A complacent church must be reminded that communion is a categorical event. Just as all who are under the cloud were saved, just as all who passed through the sea were saved, just as all who were baptized into Moses were led to the promised land, just as they who partook with the, in the spiritual food were given sustenance for the journey, and just as all who drank from the spiritual rock were guided and provided safe passage from Egypt to the promised land and safe harbor upon their arrival, so is Christ for us. And Paul identifies the rock as Jesus Christ and declares to us the consummate picture, the fulfillment of these categorical events, though symbolic in the Old Testament, nevertheless speaking the truth of what it means to be in Christ. Is it not a participation in the blood of Christ when we drink of the cup this morning? Is it not a participation in the body of Christ So as to say, all who are in Christ's body and all who are under Christ's blood will pass through judgment to the promised land of eternal life. Secondly, a complacent church must be reminded that communion is an eschatological landmark. Eschatology refers to the study of end times or last things, but it also more broadly identifies that God has a purpose and a direction to human history. Human destiny has been playing out before the eyes of the onlookers according to God's sovereign plan in an eschatological way, revealing His intentions for His interactions with everyone and all of mankind according to His sovereign terms of covenant. God has been progressively unfolding this destiny throughout the pages of His covenant revelation, and there remains yet a consummation for its ultimate destiny upon the day we read of earlier, at the end of Revelation. Yet for Paul, we, he understood and instructed the church that we ought to recognize where we are in this continuum. We pick up on his admonition in verse 6. Now these things took place as examples for us that we may not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. 
We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and be destroyed by the destroyer. Verse 11, now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. On whom the end of the ages has come. There's an eschatological time signature there. There's a milestone, a landmark of human destiny referred to there in that phrase, on whom the end of the ages has come. To what is Paul referring? Paul is saying that the ages past spoke of an age to come. And this church had been partakers of the truth and the proclamation that that age, that event, had arrived. And it was the fulfillment of the Paschal Lamb of old in the death of Christ now in time. And so Calvary was in one sense the consummation of the ages in that at that moment full and final payment was made for all sins of all of God's redeemed for all time. And so you see here, we have even less excuse. These things were written of old as an example for us, Paul says twice, that we may not desire evil as they did. We are graciously given the old covenant narrative with its foibles, its failures, and its apostasy so that we might learn that covenants of God are trustworthy and the deceptive schemes of man are suicidal. Verse 11 again, he said, Now these things were written to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Paul is saying, You most privileged church to receive the whole counsel of God now in the fulfillment of Jesus Christ. Do not be like the wayward covenant people of old who did not see the categorical reality of their baptism in covenant with him their unity in His purposes and glory that those events and those feasts represented, but rather come to the table of the Lord with a sober awareness that at this milestone of human destiny, God has prepared a way for you to be justified. And had He not provided it, there would be no hope for you. Think of this eschatological landmark as a lighthouse, if you will, I like this illustration because a lighthouse serves two purposes, at least. One I see as a great welcoming beacon to the harbor. For the ship that has been lost at sea, perhaps now found its way, charted a course, and perhaps endured a storm or two, when it finally sees that flickering light on the horizon low enough not to be a star, There's a quickening in the heart of the sailor that safe harbor is on the horizon. Thus, this eschatological landmark of Christ, dead and buried, crucified, resurrected, and ascended, is a beacon of welcome for the sin-dead lost soul. It calls to the sinner, there is safe haven, haven in Christ's body and in Christ's blood. But the second purpose of a lighthouse 
is also to warn. Lighthouses serve to welcome and to warn. To steer you clear of the rocks, lest you suffer shipwreck. And so Paul's instructions ring with both purposes. There is hope. There is salvation here. There is a beacon of welcoming to those who realize the truth of what they're hearing. But for those who are the captain of their own ship, who don't bow before the navigation tools that are required for them to safely discern where the rocks are, to them it is a word of warning. Mind your table manners. When you come to communion with the Lord, let it not be in a cavalier way that doesn't recognize the beacon of His covenant milestones. You do not deserve it. It is only by Christ's mercy and grace alone is there hope, safety, and salvation for you. You did not design it. Left to your own devices, you would have slaughtered your own self and your destiny and all hope for your future long ago. But God's sovereign, preserving power has guided you safely to His shores. So recognize to you upon whom the end of the ages has come, the welcome and the warning of Jesus Christ and His finished work on Calvary. The third thing a complacent church must be reminded of is that communion is a way of escape. When treated rightly, when embraced according to its intent and design, communion is a great means of grace for us. Verse 13, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, He will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless is not a part- is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? First of all, in communion, there is a humility implied, indeed expressed, when the people of God are welcome to the table of the Almighty. They must see themselves as invited guests and recognize the highest of table manners. The wretched depth and depravity of our God-rebelling sin, our God-hating sin, that has reached so deep into the human psyche, heart, and behavior as to constitute a whole-scale rejection of Him that only metastasizes and grows into an institutional, vehement, vitriolic hatred against the Almighty is proof enough that when He offers the invitation to His table, we had better first repent before we presume to sit down in His good graces. Imagine if you have someone over to eat. You've prepared a meal, you've slaved, you've worked hard. And they knock on your door and you open it up and the first thing they do is kick dirt in your face. The next thing they do is they bust through the door and they tear something off your walls. They kick over your furniture. They turn your kids loose on your most sacred possessions in the china cabinet. Results in a food fight and mayhem. 
You can't imagine a more rude situation. You would be aghast. Your mouth would be open. You would never forget that experience. You would feel so violated. You would understand those people to be reprobate in their behavior. How much more, again I ask, by matter of degree, when we are, as it were, a bull in the china cabinet of God's table and do not recognize that we don't deserve a seat there and it is only by His grace that one is provided. If we are ever tempted to be haughty or prideful, if we are ever tempted to think that we can make our own table, that there's another way, that I'm good enough, great enough, or whatever else might creep into the heart of man, communion is a great way of escape. It's a way provided for us to recognize the terms and conditions of covenant. The Son of God incarnate. It was His broken body, His slaughtered form. It was His dripping blood, His crushed brow, the stripes that tore through His back, the flesh that was torn to ribbons that earns us a place there. We must approach it having renounced all humility, all pride, and bringing only humility so that we are not like the ungrateful who only wants benefits and it does not occur to them to worship. Communion for the complacent church is a way of escape. It's a way to distance ourselves from evil. Paul says, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. In fleeing from idolatry, they would flee to a redeemed vision for communion. What about the old affections of the soul and the easily deceived heart of man? How do we build a bulwark and protection and strengthen and temper the shield of faith to resist the fiery darts of the evil one? Well, is it not, in part, the cup, which is a participation in the blood of Christ that enables us to do just that, to distance ourselves from evil and familiarize ourselves in sweet fellowship with what God has done through the offering of His Son. Also, Paul offers this admonition to reasonable and discerning people. Paul says, I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. Paul does not presume that this is a message that he is inventing out of whole cloth. He does not speak unilaterally. He does not speak of his own accord. His, mes- his message is not one that is not attested by significant proofs of God's word having been delivered thus far and indeed written deep upon the conscience of every human being, even though they suppress it. Paul is saying, if you reject the word of God and his vision for communion, you are taking a flight to absurdity. The sensible people have an awareness of self and who they are and their sin. 
They do not pretend to be what they know they can never be outside of a miraculous intervention, a sovereign way made by a holy God. Thus a sensible people who can judge rightly with sobriety, embrace communion for what it is intended to be. Knowing that a rejection of the word of God and a rejection of the means of God and the grace of God is the height of absurdity. Number four, a complacent church must be reminded that communion is a rite of identification. Again, verse 16, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Again, reading that verse 16, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? There is a difficult to comprehend in the weakness of our flesh concept called union with Christ. And it's simply a name for the theological truth that without an identity with Christ, there is no hope, there is no salvation. There are a number of beautiful pictures in Scripture to illustrate identification with Christ. Baptism is one of them. We've read it already in verse 2. All who were baptized into Moses in the cloud and the sea. Thus that picture there is an immersion in the experience of one who represents hope for you. And so baptism is for us an immersion, identity with a co-experiencing of Jesus Christ's own work for us. We find our identity and our hope in His death. We relate to Him on that basis. It's a union. We see ourselves dead. We see ourselves resurrected in Him. And thus baptism bears that beautiful picture. In John chapter 6, referenced briefly last week, Jesus says two difficult sayings. You must eat his flesh and drink his blood to be a disciple and a follower of him. In this picture, again, it's a metaphor. It relates to communion, certainly. But it's this idea of an intimate association, a relationship with who he is so close that you indeed are instricably linked to the work of Christ. That what he has partaken in you partake in. What He has experienced, you will experience. And where He is, you will one day soon be. John 15, picture of union, vine and branches. The vine and the branches stem from the same root. They are the same plant. The two are inseparable. A branch cannot live apart from the vine. And so the picture again in Romans 11, the beautiful grafting in. There is a union with the fruit-bearing tree that is Christ that a branch shares in this picture. I am the vine, Christ says, and you are the branches. And so communion is one of these beautiful pictures of union. In taking of the blood of the cup or the Blood that the cup represents. 
in taking that cup to our lips, it is an identification with, it's a picture in our experience of a participation in the work of Christ. It ought to bring in the reality of our consciousness I was a um, feeling of I was there. You know that statement that's common. I hesitate to use it as an example because it's been so trivialized, but I guess you had to be there. And in that statement, there's a presumption in communication that you really can't understand the story that person has to tell unless you shared in the experience. Well, communion allows us the ability to never have to say, I guess I had to be there the moment when Christ died. The moment when His blood was visibly shed before the onlookers for the sin of my wayward heart. God has graciously allowed in communion the ability for us to experience today a participation in Christ. What a beautiful picture. It is a sign and a seal. It is a means of grace. It is symbolic, but it is powerful. Jesus Christ now is our covenant head. What he has experienced, he experienced in representation of and on behalf of all who are in him. And so it is all who rightfully participate in the cup and in the bread experience this right of identification with Christ, union with him. Fifthly, a complacent church must be reminded that communion is a confession of transcending unity. 1 Corinthians 10, verses 17 and 18. Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel are not those who eat the sacrifices, participants in the altar. Again, because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel are not those who eat the sacrifices, participants in the altar. There's this picture in communion of the basis and ground of our unity. And it's a transcending unity. One of the great tragedies of the modern church is we tend to sift and sort according to things that are not Christ. You find churches that are tailored in some ways proactively to cater to a certain demographic. We're a church to reach the rich. We're a church to reach the poor. We're a church to reach this person and that hobby, this special interest, or that particular generational identity. Jesus Christ said His church finds its unity in nothing less than Jesus Christ alone. Christ's blood and work is enough and ought to be, may we repent if it's not, enough of a binding element to tie the most motley crew of misfits together with cords that cannot be broken. The Lord is pleased to do that kind of thing. When God brings together a drug addict who is repentant and a self-important, prideful, riding on the coattails Christian kid like I was together 
and confession of utter brokenness before the cross, there's a sweet unity those two can share regardless of their otherwise life experiences because they understand themselves in light of God's word and the work of Christ. So long as Christ's body and blood chiefly rule and reign over the church and provide the ground of our unity, there is nothing else that we ought to see or rely upon to make decisions upon, to bind us or separate us. It is the blood of Christ and the body of Christ that we partake of together that is the basis of our unity. One illustration perhaps might be what would the United States of America be without the Declaration of Independence? Well, we might say that that experience, that bit of history, is so inextricably linked that it is indeed The very definition of America, you can't separate the essence of America from the moment of its inception, of its essence as a free and independent people. And so it is with the church. What would the church be without the Lord's table? The church might be a lot of things, but it is not the biblical confessing, blood-bought and bound church. It is a hobby, a club It is something less. It is expendable, disposable, and trivial. But it is not the body of Christ anymore without communion. We live in a culture that despises communion and despises the church of God. How many people convey to you in their attitude, and maybe you're guilty of this at at some time in your own life, that assembly with God's people is basically optional? How many people have I talked to who think they can have church with a loon call on the lake? With the, you know, paddling across the placid surface. Don't get me wrong. Psalm 19 tells us there's plenty to appreciate of the glory of the Lord in creation. But I have never seen anyone in their right frame of mind pull up to a loon and have communion with them. You cannot have communion with the deer in the forest and the leaves on the trees. What does it betray about us if there is something adverse to fellowshipping among those who are made in His image and purchased by His blood? How does Christ feel about His bride? And how ought we to feel about it? And communion is directly tied to that. One of the reasons for fellowshipping together is so that we can partake together in this beautiful, sovereign and gracious rite of identification. It's a picture for us of what glory will be in its eternal and consummate form when all other distinguishing and disparity marks are wiped away and erased and we have only the whitewashed robes of Jesus Christ to look at between each other in heaven one day. Ancient church document, the Didache, There's a blessing that was prayed over the bread, apparently in this early church tradition, 1st or 2nd century. Just a beautiful little phrase. As this broken bread was scattered over the hills and then when gathered, becomes one mass, became one mass, so may thy church be gathered from the ends of the earth into thy kingdom. For thine is the glory and the power through Jesus Christ forevermore. What a beautiful picture. 
In moments, there will be a loaf of bread sitting before us today made up of, I don't know, thousands of grains that were once scattered across the fields of somewhere in this globe, yet they are all collected in one place to serve us today. And this is the picture of the bread that we read of in this early church bit of poetry. And I believe it is representative, good illustration of what verse 17 says, because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of that one bread. And so in communion, there is a confession of a transcending unity, something more important than my feelings, more important than me, more important than us. Jesus Christ, his finished work, is the binding element of our fellowship. Finally, a complacent church must be reminded that communion is a feast of demarcation. There's not just a unifying element involved with communion, but also a separating one. Verse 18, consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then, that food offered to idols is anything, or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that what pagan sacrifice they offered to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? There's a cultural antithesis to communion, and that is every lame brain, ridiculous, sin-centered excuse that people have to pretend they have fellowship and friendship with one another. The Bible says friendship with the world puts you at enmity with the Lord. And we are so quick to find our confidence, security, and identity in a thousand things apart from God's work. And if we do so, that is, if we find other binding experiences, other fun associations, other forms of identity, other basis to judge ourselves and our self-worth by outside of the work of Christ, we're doing nothing but partaking in the cup of demons and eating from the table of the demonic. Paul says the food that's offered to idols, whether you eat it or not, you know, when you buy it in the marketplaces, because at this time, virtually all food that was sold in the secular market was blessed, uh, you know, under the, the false gods that day. And Paul said he's not so concerned that you would inadvertently buy some of that food and partake in it. The real concern is where your heart is at. Do you find that you are feasting at the fellowship, feasting of the fellowship at the table of demons, do you find more identity with the cup of the demonic than you do at the table of the Lord? And this is the message. It really is a feast of demarcation. Now, when the church had lost the identity and the essence, the reality of this feast, they were doing all kinds of ridiculous things. They were turning it into something trivial and self-indulgent and self-centered. People were even getting drunk at the feast and so on turning some people away like the poor and engorging themselves. And we might say, well, we would never have the audacity to do that kind of thing in our communion service today. But let me ask you this. Do we have the audacity to ascribe in our behavior and our affections authority, provision, sufficiency, revelation, holiness, and uniqueness anywhere else at any other table? than the table of the Lord? 
If so, then we are guilty of the indictment of Corinth. We are indeed drinking of the cup of idolatry and feasting at the table of the enemy. If we go back to Exodus chapter 12, there is a feast of demarcation. That is a feast to show that there is a set-apart nature to God's covenant people according to His exclusive terms that make them holy. And in Exodus chapter 12, it's the institution of the Passover. And as we read through that section, there's at least three times where the divine instruction is that this will be a feast forever so that you and your children and your covenanting community can see the significance of this event. There is even a command to mark your calendar by that day. For you, history hinges on this moment, God told His people. Now all through Scripture, we see the significance of this covenant feast. We see it reiterated again in 1 Corinthians. We see it finally in this picture in Revelation. Final verse I'd have you turn to, Revelation 19. In Revelation 19, what we participate in today is a precursor of this glorious event. Verse 7 Verse 7 reads, all back up to 6. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him glory, for the marriage supper, the marriage of the Lamb, has come. And the bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen. Here we read in this section. There will one day be a moment where we will gather together. And we will be joined not with the haggardly band, the few and the foolish that congregate around his table, at least by man's standards today. But it will be a mighty sanctified, glorified multitude that roars in praise. And that multitude in verse 9 gathers at a table. The angel said to me, write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. And so we find the vision of communion finally fulfilled in the marriage supper of the Lamb in Revelation 19, 7 and following. We are informed here in this eschatological language again of the enduring picture preaching the truth of fellowship with God made possible by His redemptive sacrifice in Jesus Christ, His Son. This picture is enduring from eternity past in His mind and the institution and time in Exodus 12 on into eternity and glory. This legacy of the glory of God manifest in salvation from the Paschal Lamb of Exodus to the marriage supper of the Lamb in glory. 
And so today, in this Feast of Demarcation, where we celebrate that our provision, our sufficiency, revelation, holiness, and the uniqueness of God's way that He had prepared are all centered in Christ and pictured in this feast. Today we participate in this redemptive continuum. Let us pray that our table manners today are appropriate for the occasion, that we realize the weight with reverence and worship of participation in the body and blood of Christ. Let's transition in prayer. O Heavenly Father, I pray that these words from the immortal